Shall we just pray um, before we start? Uh, Lord God, this is a tough and a, in many respects, distressing uh, passage to read. Uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to look at it uh, tonight with uh, clear minds and open hearts. Uh, and Lord, that in the end our eyes would be drawn uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we would trust him, love him, and give our all for him. In his name we pray. Amen. Great, this week has seen the much-anticipated Oprah Winfrey interview of um, Lance Armstrong, seven-time Tour de France champion. An interview in which Armstrong finally admitted, didn't he, to engaging in systematic and sophisticated doping in every one of the Tour de France's that he triumphed in. It was confirmation of what everyone had known for a long period of time, but it's a culmination of a really huge fall from grace. He was a sporting icon, talented, successful, uh, wealthy, committed. He battled through extensive cancer that once gave him a 40% chance of survival. He then went on to win seven tours to France. He engaged in, in extensive charity work, $350 million raised uh, to date. Yet in the end analysis, his life seems to have been built uh, on nothing more than a fraud. I guess it's a story, isn't it, that leaves anyone with any sense of passion for sport and human endeavour, just with a great sense of sadness and disappointment, a real sort of letdown. And tonight's passage is perhaps one of the saddest passages in the whole of the Bible. It's a passage that carries a huge sense of grief and disappointment. The passage is about the enormous sense of disappointment felt by God in the face of his apathetic and self-centred people. And it's about the consequences uh, that follow. So if you keep it open, that would be great. Isaiah chapter 5, uh, page, page 689. Isaiah was, was God's outstanding prophet uh, of the day. And the only five chapters of Isaiah are a sort of introduction, a prelude, if you like, to the rest of the book that starts in chapter 6 with a description of Isaiah's initial calling. And the introduction reaches its sort of climax in this chapter 5 with a song in the form of a parable. So a story uh, with a meaning in the form of a song. And it's a song that kind of sets the scene and sets out the problem at at the heart of God's people. And it's a song that poses some quite searching uh, questions. And there's three questions that I want us to briefly consider uh, from this passage as we look at it together tonight. It's going to be hard work at times, uh, but we'll get there, and so stick with it. First question is this. Why is God disappointed? Why is God uh, disappointed? It's good just to know who the key figures are in this song. We've got Isaiah, he's the singer. Uh, He's singing to the one he loves. Who's that? That's God. And the subject of the song is the vineyard. That is the people of God. So have a look at verse 1. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. What's the point being made here? Well, the owner of the vineyard has gone to no... Uh, expense spared effort uh, in creating this vineyard. He's created the perfect uh, vineyard. The soil's fertile and rich. He did all the physical backbreaking work of clearing away all the stones. He's planted the best vines he could find. He's even built a watchtower so that, that the place could be protected. He's got the wine press up and running for when the wine is ready. And so the expectation is tremendous, isn't it? The owner anticipates a great crop of grapes. But what's the result? Verse 2. Then he looked for a good crop of grapes, 
but it yielded only bad fruit. What's the result? Bitter, sour, unproductive, useless grapes. Nothing that is going to make a good bottle of wine. What a disappointment. And so the song kind of swings round, if you like, to a courtroom drama. And Isaiah treats his listeners as the jury. Do you see that in verse 5? Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyards. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? So the vineyard is, is being held accused of being morally responsible for the disastrous crop. Isaiah is saying, look, members of the jury, what more could the owner have done? Surely the fault can't be with the owner. He did everything he could. The fault, that's got to lie elsewhere. And so in the face of this unproductive crop, well, the fate of the vineyard is spelled out, isn't it, in verse 5. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. And briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Vineyard is going to go to ruin. It will become overgrown, trampled, unprotected. There's a very clear hint, isn't there, who the owner is there. There's no doubt. It's not your average landlord uh, that can withhold the rain. That can only be God. And that's clear from verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress within the people of God. God is deeply grieved. His heart is broken generously and graciously. He's he's given his people his infinite care, love, protection. What's the result? Bad fruit. People have no faith and it seems no love. You know, if you think about the history of God's dealings with his people, you can understand where he's coming from, can't you? Why God's heart is is broken. Just think what God has done. He called Abraham. He promised Abraham that he would have descendants who would become a great nation. And against all the odds, Abraham and his elderly and barren wife Sarah, they have a son, Isaac, then a grandson, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. The 12 tribes follow. God raises up Joseph to high office to protect the the start-up nation in Egypt. The nation's rescued from Egypt under Moses. God intervenes to part the Red Sea, just as it seems The nation's going to be caught up and slaughtered. They're led to Mount Sinai. God gives them the law so they can know how to live under God's blessing. Joshua takes them into the promised land. God continues to protect them. The nation unites under King David. There's a great high point under King Solomon. The temple is built. The people worship God. And daily there is a reminder of God's mercy and forgiveness as sacrifices are made. All for what? For nothing. A crop of bad fruit. The people are faithless and loveless. Yet what more, what more could God have done? Well, if the fault for the bad crop uh, lies with the vineyard, if the problem's with the people and not with God, then the second question surely has got to be this. Why are the people guilty? Why are the people guilty? Well, the answer lies in verses 8 to 23. And in these verses we read of charges that are brought against the people. And each charge begins uh, with a woe. You see that in verses 8, 11, 18, 20, 21 and 22. 
And these six woes describe different aspects of the sins of the people. There's a kind of increasing speed and intensity, isn't it, as they come. A bit like when you sort of approach a roundabout and you go over the, the lines and it goes, dum, 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 gets faster and faster as you, as you get closer. That's exactly what's happening here. There's increased intensity as the listeners are, are heading towards judgment. So what are the offences that the people are charged with? Well, I think the first two offences encapsulate the essence of all of the offences. They capture, if you like, the heart of human sin. Firstly, there's selfishness, a disregard of people by people. Just have a look at verse 8. People have been greedily and selfishly building great property empires, wheeling and dealing, accumulating at other people's expense, adding house to house, joining field to field, taking space that others need, living in great and splendid isolation. This is a picture, isn't it, of the powerful rich exploiting the vulnerable poor. People haven't looked after each other. They haven't loved each other as they should have done. And all within God's nation. The nation that's supposed to model the just laws of God uh, to the rest of the world. Yet there's no community, a lack of fellowship, a lack of care, and a plain lack of love. That's not acceptable to God, is it? Judgment is coming. What will happen? Verse 9. These great fine mansions, they're going to become nothing more than empty, desolate shells. In the end, these great property empires, these portfolios, they're going to be useless and unproductive. A 10-acre vineyard, you're going to get five gallons of wine out of that, enough to fill a Ford-focused petrol tank. Equally bad with the seed. The amount produced is about the same as what Ruth, in the book of Ruth, managed to glean uh, in, in one gleaning session after the fields have been harvested. That's not very much, to put it mildly. The greed is going to come to nothing. So that is offence number one. Selfishness and greed, a disregard of people by people. I think the second one that encapsulates all that's going on here is this. There's a disregard for God. A disregard for God. Just look at verse 11. People rise early in the morning to drink. They stay up late at night until they're inflamed with wine. That's wasted, smashed in today's language. What's the point here? Alcohol is what life is about. Drink probably isn't the heart of the issue, but the point is this. Booze drives their life. It makes them tick, and God doesn't. So what's the consequence? They've got no regard for God. Verse 12, they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. And you kind of see this terrible irony, don't you, of the judgment that will come on these people. The important men who are used to kind of Pizza Hut style, all-you-can-eat buffets, they're going to die of hunger. The masses who debauch themselves on happy hour drink frenzies, they're going to be parched with thirst. Judgment will come. So in God's nation, there's a disregard for God and a disregard of people by people. And that was the disease that had taken hold uh, in Judah. It was a corrupt and oppressive culture that had pursued materialism and pleasure. And the kind of result is this grim picture in verse 14 of this sort of mass grave, if you like, opening up with all the nobles, the masses, the brawlers, the revelers, all descending into it 
all will be humbled. It could be no other way, can it? Verse 16, the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice and the Holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. God is a holy and a righteous God. So in the end, justice, it's it's got to be done. Arrogant men will be brought low and humbled and the nation will be ruined. And all that you're left with is some sheep grazing among the kind of eerie ruins. You can picture the scene. Verse 17. It's a desperately sad picture. It's not about you, but perhaps the most striking and sad aspect of this song is what appears to be the sort of irretrievable um, breakdown of the relationship between God and his people. There is no Hollywood-style happy ending here. There's no reconciliation. You've simply got judgment, destruction, and then the grave. Why is that? Why is there no reconciliation? Why is there no redemption? The fault can't be with God, can it? What more could God have done? So surely it must be with the people. So I think the third and final question is this. Why won't the people repent? Why won't the people repent? Surely the answer is this. Despite all the warnings, all the heads up they got, in the end the people just decided to test God. Decided to kind of call his bluff. They didn't believe that God will judge. They think that in the end everything's going to be okay. It'll be all right on the night. We'll be fine. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with carts of rope. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so that we may see it. Let it approach, let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so that we may know it. You know, these people are sort of standing there in kind of arrogant defiance of God. They're dragging sin along with them and it's as though they're saying, come on if you think you're hard enough. Have a go if you think we're in the wrong. We challenge you, get off your backside, God, and do something. In their kind of brazen arrogance, the people think that God is powerless uh, to judge. And they also reckon, don't they, that they are right and God is wrong. Do you see that in verses 20 and 21? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What's going on? The people have kind of swapped the labels, haven't they? Like the kind of joke everyone plays of swapping the sugar and the salt and watching someone have a disgusting cup of tea. There's been a kind of reversal of values. So in their conceit, the people have decided that they are right and what God has said is wrong. And so the inevitable consequence of this sort of label swapping, this self-justification, is that the people conclude they don't need to fear judgment. Hey, there's nothing to worry about. Chill out. What's the problem? We're doing all right. We self-assessed. And we think we're fine. Yet this self-assessment results in an inflamed and misplaced sense of self-confidence. See that in verse 21? Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. You know, having swapped the labels of good and evil, the people conclude that because of their own cleverness they will avoid judgment. In the end, people think God is wrong 
to judge. How foolish is that? And yet, what's the inevitable result? The right understanding of justice just goes straight out the window. Their understanding of justice is so warped and muddled, it's almost as though they've been drinking. People have been propping up the bar, downing mixes, triple shots, double shots, whatever it is. And what's the consequence? Verse 23, they acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. So their drunken thinking is so muddled that evil just passes them by. They, they get involved with it. They're corrupt in all they do. So they can no longer understand God's way or see what he's doing. And any right concept of justice just evaporates. Yet they think that God won't see or that he won't care. What is the narrative of these verses? It's a, it's a story of a journey, isn't it, on a slippery slope. So you start with scepticism, God is powerless to judge, kind of leads to this swapping of values and self-justification, God is wrong to judge, and then you end up with the idea of justice just getting chucked out the window. In the end, who cares? Certainly not God. I love James Bond films, probably my favourite Bond film of all time is Casino Royale, and much of the film centres on Bond trying to bankrupt this sort of global terrorist banker, Le Chief, through this kind of high-stakes poker game. And after some ups and downs, uh, Le Chief eventually goes all in with all his chips, puts them all on the table. Bond wins, Le Chief loses, and loses everything, including eventually his life. Well, in calling God's bluff, God's people made an all-in gamble at the biggest of gambling tables. And it was the wrong call. Because judgment comes and they lose the lot. Look at verse 24. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw, and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the street. That is a tragic and grim picture. But it gets worse, doesn't it? Verse 26 onwards tells of the terrible full force of the judgment of God as the nation is overrun by foreign powers. First will come the Assyrians, the kind of biggest war machine the world has seen, the US army of its day. They'll be followed by the Babylonians, who will take the nation into captivity. And that is a terrible fate that is being sketched out from verse 26 to the end of the chapter. They called God's bluff, and they paid a terrible price. Well, to finish, where does that leave us uh, today? Well, first a question. How should we respond uh, to the God who has done everything? What more could God have done? And if that was true at the time of Isaiah, how much true is that of us today? Because we stand, don't we, on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ. We know that seven centuries later, in his grace, 
God sent Jesus, his only beloved son, whom he loved, to earth to die on a cross. Jesus chose to take on himself the darkness of God's anger, God's raised hand, as Isaiah describes it, and the sin of the world. Your sin, my sin, as it engulfs him on the cross. Jesus paid the penalty that you and I deserve. And because of that, we have no need to fear death or judgment. If we trust in the cross of Jesus Christ, we can be reconciled with the creator God who loves us and knows us more than we can imagine. There's a promise for all people for all time. In Jesus Christ, God has given us the greatest gift of all. We are truly those to whom God has given everything that could be given. So what is our response? Surely it should be to give our all uh, for him. You know, so often we want, don't we, to be king of our own lives. We want to wear the crown. And we're only willing to give God so much. You know, the leftovers, the spare time, kind of part-time contracts uh, for our lives. And there are those, those dark and tough corners of our hearts where we're just hanging on, where we keep God at arm's length. The expectation of God is very great. Surely we don't want to let him down. Surely we would long for our hearts to echo the words of the famous hymn. Were the whole realm of nature mine, there were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Jesus gave his all for us, and in response demands our all. Will we go all in for God? I think the second um, application is that judgment is a reality. And in many respects, we don't like the idea of judgment. We don't like to think about what judgment means for those that we love, our friends, our family. I certainly don't. So we can be tempted, can't we, to think that everything's going to be okay in the end. It'll be all right on the night. And we would be fools to think like that. We need to be careful that we're not tempted to sort of swap around those labels and start to make up our own standards, to think that God is wrong uh, to judge. We've got to get our, our thinking on this clear because that will shape our lives, we how we spend our time, our resources, the priorities for our relationships. We should make no mistake, God sees everything. He knows all there is to know. And the day is coming when Christ will return and all will be judged. I think third and finally, there's an encouragement in this passage. You know, if we're Christians here tonight, then we are God's vineyard. We are God's people uh, today. And just think forward to those words uh, of Jesus in John chapter 15. You can look them up later. Jesus said this, didn't he? I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, if we've trusted in Christ, if we're in Christ, then we will bear fruit. We will be fulfilling the goal for which we were born. That's beyond doubt, Jesus said it. What is that goal? To become more like Christ. 
The world will see the fruit that we bear and know that we are his disciples. So yes, the expectation of God is very great. But in trusting in Jesus, we can't fail but to meet it. Shall we pray? Lord God, this is a difficult uh, passage. And sometimes we struggle to uh, understand uh, all that has happened uh, in human history, all that does happen uh, today. Uh, but Lord, we do acknowledge that you are holy uh, and a righteous God. And we do acknowledge where we stand uh, before you as sinful people. People that fall short uh, of what you demand, rightly demand from us. But Lord God, we do thank you that uh, you didn't leave us alone in our mess. But Lord, that you uh, met us where we're at in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've opened that way up um, back to yourself. That we can be redeemed. We can become your children. And we can live a life that is uh, for you. You've, you've enabled us to be able to do that. Uh, to follow you with our hearts. And we pray that we would do so with all of our hearts. We wouldn't hold back. But that we would give our all for you. Uh, as you have done for us. We pray that tonight. Uh, and as we go out this week. And indeed the rest of our lives. In Jesus name. Amen.